If you have your Bible, I'd love to have you join me in Colossians chapter 4. How many of you have ever attempted to learn a new language online? Yeah, you've downloaded the app, you thought, this is the year that I am going to learn Swahili. I promise, this this is the year. I was studying and I found when it comes to learning a language, humanity is all for it online. The online language learning market currently is worth about $12.5 billion and growing. In fact, it's estimated to be at about $25 billion just in the next three years. Now, I also know because the world is saturated with English, it is not really necessitated that we learn a second language. In fact, on a list compiled of the most enthusiastic language learners in the world, the United States came in 68th on the list. Because we don't really have to learn something in our mind. When we arrive at Colossians chapter 4 this morning, what we are going to encounter is the reality that there is a new language that we must learn. A language that we must adapt our lives to. The theme of the book of Colossians is the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is sufficient to redeem us. Jesus Christ is sufficient to give us new life. And the new life that Jesus has given to us demands a new lifestyle. And new speech is something that coincides that new lifestyle. We must learn a new language. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to look with me in verse 2. Continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. With all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, for which I am also in bonds, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without, redeeming the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. Now it is impossible to read that segment of verses and not come away with the awareness of an emphasis on speech, on our words. In fact, he says in there, speak, speak, utterance, manifest, speech. It's all throughout these verses. There is a language that is mandated by our new life in Christ. One pastor said, when you become a Christian, you ought to begin to lose the accent of the world. Your speech, my speech, ought to mark us out as something different. And the difference that we can mark out in our speech is delineated in these verses. Note this with me first. We have to learn the language of prayer and thanksgiving. In fact, he says it plainly, continue in prayer and watch in the same with thanksgiving. Continue in prayer. This is where we find our ability to adapt this segment of verses to our series, Abide. Continue, dwell, abide, stay constant in, full devotion to, continual, unwearied, persevering in prayer. It's a state in which we live. 
constant and unbroken prayer. Constant and unbroken fellowship with our Heavenly Father. Perhaps we could even understand it as to walk and to breathe in prayer. Everything that we do, every moment that we live, every relationship we engage in, saturated in, in a spirit of prayer. Every thought. Now this is not something new. In fact, when the disciples were with Jesus, they asked Jesus, teach us to pray, because they had witnessed Him in prayer. Certainly, it was effective ministry that was the result of His communion with His Father, and the disciples desired to understand that. When Jesus commissioned the church, and we see them there gathered in the upper room, praying before Pentecost, they're all in unison together. Prayer was a real part of the church. In the pastoral epistles and in the letters to the churches over and again, it is communicated, pray, pray, pray. Paul said to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 10.5, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringing into, into captivity every thought unto the obedience of Christ. Every thought, every moment, every instance in prayer. We hear it again when Paul wrote to the believers at Philippi and he says in Philippians 4, 6, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. You say, now hold on a second, I'm going to be really ineffective at life if everywhere I go I'm praying. People are going to look at me like a weirdo if I'm walking through life in prayer and I'm constantly breathing out and uttering prayers. I think what the apostle is teaching is easily established in this regard. He's not merely talking about words that spill out of our mouth as much as he is the posture of our hearts. A submissiveness, an inner awareness, a dialogue that we have with the Spirit of God in heaven. One wrote this, there is a way of ordering our mental life on more than one level at once. Now I know a lot of people are like, really? I'm struggling to order my life on one mental level. But hear him out. He says, on one level we can be thinking, discussing, seeing, calculating, meeting all the demands of external affairs, but deep within. Behind the scenes, at a profounder level, we may also be in prayer and adoration, song and worship, and a gentle receptiveness to divine breathings, the Holy Spirit leading us. A spirit, a posture of prayer in our lives. Another said it this way, the time of business does not differ with me from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great a tranquility as if I were on my knees. Full devotion to prayer is possible in a busy life. It is a spirit of prayer in which we live. It is, a, it is the posture of our heart in that moment. In, in Philippians 4, Paul is so beautiful in the way the Holy Spirit has him word this. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, make your requests known unto God. It's so clear with thanksgiving. Let God know about these things. One linguist pointed out that when Paul talks about letting our requests be made known unto God, it pictures prayer 
in a very real way as orienting our hearts and orienting our focus towards God. That's a real understanding that Scripture gives us. Prayer focuses the lens of life. It takes it off of us. It takes us away from this earthy and temporal existence. It takes us above our anxieties and our emotions and our concerns and it orients us back to God. It puts him back in the center. Too often we get troubled. Too often we get enamored. We get weighed down with stuff down here. Prayer gets us reoriented to God. Now, in Colossians 4 and in Philippians 4, Paul makes this known. Here's a condition. Here's a prerequisite for your prayer life. Continue in it. Persevere in it. Watch in the same. Be alert. Be awake. Be ready. With thanksgiving. That's what Paul told the believers at Philippi as well. With thanksgiving. I don't have a gratitude attitude. Largely, I'm a miserable person. You say, really? Mm, Yeah, probably so. I'm really good at complaining. It's kind of my default setting. I just point things out, pick things out. I I just chew on things. I, I just pick things apart. I complain and I murmur. That is not good. That's not scriptural. You work past it with the help of the Holy Spirit, but I'm a pretty good complainer. I'm not really great at Thanksgiving. So you're not thankful. This week, I'm super thankful. Really thankful. And we're supposed to be thankful this week, right? I mean, on Thursday, you may sit across the table from somebody and you're going to have to look them in the eye and you're going to have to say to them, I'm thankful for you. And the only reason you're thankful for them is because they're near something that you want them to pass you. I understand. I know how it works. The attitude of thanksgiving is something that should be prevalent in our hearts. And Paul, not me, the Holy Spirit, not I, said if you are ever going to successfully continue in prayer and watch in the same, you're going to have to do it with a spirit of thanksgiving. Here's the brutal truth. Without thanksgiving, most often, our praying is spiritualized complaining. Without thanksgiving, our prayer list is nothing more than whining our way through what we didn't get. Whining our way through what we really think we should have. Whining our way through God's timing on something as being way later than we desire it to be. And I'd venture to say, if you're brutally honest with yourself, much of your prayer life is truly nothing more than sanctified whining or spiritualized complaining. And without thanksgiving, I assure you that it is. One wrote this, Even God the Father enjoys hearing His children say thank you every once in a while. You ever think about it in those terms? We go to God with everything that weighs us down. And we're quick to say thank you. I don't know about you, but even when we pray before a meal or we pray to start or to end a day, we are so quick, we are so habitual, in how we thank God. But Paul is saying, if you're ever going to navigate your way through successful praying, it will only be with a spirit of thanksgiving. You say, now hold on a second. Does that mean everything that God brings into my life I have to be thankful for? Thank you, God, that I totaled my car. Thank you, God, that the insurance denied my claim on my totaled car. 
Thank you, God, that the, the leg that I broke in the car that's not now covered by insurance is still there and hurts greatly. Thank you, God. Are we like sadistic people now? Is that the expectation? No. But I think with everything that we bring to God, we can thank Him for overseeing it. We can thank Him for strengthening us to walk through it. We can thank Him for planning to resolve it one day or one moment according to His will. We can thank Him for directing all of what is going on in our lives toward His own perfect conclusion for the accomplishment of His will in our lives. That requires spiritual maturity. It requires humility and emptying of self. And all of those are healthy for a believer. I think we misunderstand prayer. Praying with thanksgiving means that you're praying with a willing understanding that God will give you what you want only if He deems that you need it. Not that we get whatever we want whenever we want it. I enjoy a little humor as I study this out. One pastor said he greatly misunderstood praying according to God's will and being thankful He said, I can remember when I was 10 years old sitting in church and I heard if I believed I would receive whatever I asked for in prayer. Matthew 21, 22. He said, I was thrilled with that. He said, I remember running outside later that afternoon, standing on the driveway, closing my eyes real tight and saying, God, I want to fly like Superman. I know you can do it. I know I can do it. You can do anything. He said, I jumped up and down four or five times and I didn't go anywhere. So you know how a 10-year-old mind works or a 46-year-old mind works. He says, I must have done it wrong. Maybe God wasn't listening. Maybe I didn't have enough faith. Maybe I didn't deserve it after all. Well, that's why Jesus taught his disciples to pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We misunderstand prayer. Think for just a minute about the will of God in heaven and the angels in heaven. When God's will is articulated, if we could imagine it in that way, do you imagine the angels responding to the will of God with debate, with negotiation? Do you imagine the angels in heaven responding to the will of God with disagreement, with a bad attitude? spiritualized, complaining, outright whining? Do you think the angels are looking to God for higher wages and more vacation time? I mean, they work all the time. I don't, I don't know that the angels process life like this. you got to let me go a second. I don't think so. The angels understand this. They live to obey Him. And what I grasp for you and I is prayer is another way of revealing to us whether or not we really plan to or want to obey the will of God. It reorients us to God. If we are ever going to grow spiritually, we have a second language to learn that is fitting of our new lifestyle. And we have to learn the language of prayer and thanksgiving. But not only that, notice what he says in verse 3. With all praying also for us. Now he's asking them to offer up a specific request on his behalf that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak. We have to learn the language of the gospel. This is really practical. 
Learn the language of witnessing, telling others about Christ. Twice in those verses, you see the word speak. Once, you see the word utterance. Once, you see the word manifest. This is proclamation. This is witnessing. This is the language of the gospel. Now, Paul makes something clear. It's a fundamental truth. It's a foundational tenet of our belief. It's the system that God installed for us to get the gospel to the world. He teaches us that prayer makes all the difference in communicating the gospel. Prayer makes all the difference in communicating the gospel. Paul didn't care whether he was in prison or not, and he was. Paul was not concerned about them praying that he would be freed. He was not concerned about them praying that he would be seen as innocent, and he was. Paul was concerned that they pray for him to have opportunities to communicate the good news. Preaching got Paul into prison. Preaching would keep Paul in prison. But he was okay with it if he could only preach more, and we know that he did. Paul burned to communicate the gospel. Now, I think this is foundational. This is elementary, really, when you're talking to believers, but we miss out on this aspect of our second language, this growth block, communicating the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 16, I will tarry at Ephesus until Pentecost. For our great door and effectual is opened unto me, and there are many adversaries. He told the elders at the church at Ephesus in Acts 20, For three years I was there continuously admonishing and teaching you with tears. He desired for these open doors. He wanted these opportunities. He labored when they were in front of him. Paul wanted to proclaim the gospel message of Jesus Christ. And he wanted to do it clearly. He said that I may make it manifest. Ever heard a sermon you just could not understand or comprehend? Don't raise your hand. It'll make me, it'll make me feel really bad. You ever had somebody open up the word of God and you're thinking to yourself, I have no earthly idea what you're talking about. It is our responsibility to make it palatable, to adorn the doctrine, and to make it digestible, to help people understand what is being communicated. And can I say it to you quite plainly? If you're going to learn the language of the gospel, that means you and I are going to have to intentionally learn how to communicate the good news. And that comes out of all of us just a little different. I don't mean the doctrine of salvation is different. I mean our presentation is part of who we are. One wrote this, any fool can write learned language. The vernacular is the real test. If you can't turn your truth, your faith into the vernacular, then you either don't understand it or you don't believe it. Help people to understand What you know to be true about Jesus, learn the language of the gospel. Learn the language of good news. You say, well, I know what I do. I just shout at people how wrong they are. That's probably pretty effective. I'm sure I've seen that. very. It works on me. Does it work on you? When people get online and tell you that your belief system is utterly false, you just think to yourself, well, yeah, sassy girl 124 said that Jesus isn't real and that my faith is junk, totally changing my entire life. You have to learn how to 
instigate the conversation and communicate your faith in such a way so that people understand what you understand about the good news of Jesus Christ. And most people don't live up here. Most people live down here. Have you learned the language of the gospel? You say, well, that takes guts. Sure. Listen to Paul. I'll amplify what he's asking for prayer for by going to another letter he wrote back into Philippians. He wrote this in Philippians 1. I know that this shall turn to my salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and my hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. He's begging for the supply of the Holy Spirit to help him. He's just asking for God to give him provision, that generous, sufficient resource to know what to say. Then he has in this a request, and Paul has every reason to be concerned. He's getting ready to go before the imperial court. He has every reason to be concerned as he testifies on behalf of the gospel and of Jesus Christ. He's confident. That God's will is being fulfilled, but he's not really sure how he'll stand up under the pressure. I love that scripture allows us to see these heroes of the faith in that light. Sometimes we'll encounter people like the Apostle Paul and we imagine I can never live to that level. Paul had no gaps in his defense. He had no chinks in his armor. Oh, contraire. Paul knew that God's will was being accomplished, but he's begging people to pray for him. Pray that I'll be bold. Pray that I'll say the right thing. Pray that I'll be brave enough to stand up under this pressure. In verse 19 there, he was utterly and transparently dependent upon the prayers of his friends. He knew he needed the Holy Spirit to supply for him the words. And in verse 20, he says, listen, in effect, I really want you to pray that I'll not let you down. I really want you to pray that I'll not let the church down or Christ down. If I'm standing in front of Caesar or I'm in front of the church, I'm just praying that I'll say the right thing. It's my earnest expectation. Turning his head, that's why. It's something that I desire so greatly. I stick my head out there to look at the right thing. And I think we can take Paul's prayer and adapt it to our lives. We are so busy. We are so under pressure. There's so much that happens in this world that works to silence us. We look at the wrong things and Paul is saying, pray. My earnest expectation is that I would stretch out my neck. I would crane my neck to look at the right thing that I would never forget in the midst of all that is going on to speak the language of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray that I'll be forthright. Pray that I'll be bold. Have you learned the language of communicating the good news, the language of the gospel? And then he gets intensely practical in verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward them that are without. That's those that are non-believers, those that are outside the church. Redeem the time. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. That ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. You say, Pastor, my doctor said stay away from salt. Now everything, everything. Salty everything. As far as your speech is concerned. Don't disregard your doctor. Stay away from salt. But he says, your speech, as it comes out of your mouth, must always be great. Learn the language of grace. Always with grace. 
Now let me say it to you this way. Grace in speech presupposes grace in the heart. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. If we have received the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we speak graciously. And as grace proceeds from the inside, it flows outward in gracious words and in kind acts. And you can tell. You can tell. Jesus was teaching. Jesus was young. Jesus was teaching in Luke chapter 4 and verse 22. The listeners tell us what they perceive about Jesus. And it is amazing. In Luke 4, 22, we read this. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? They listened to Jesus and they heard graciousness. Nothing insipid. They didn't hear something boring. They heard something that was salty, savory. It was interesting. It was not sanctimonious vocabulary. It was words with content. Thoughtful speech, joyful, witty even. Witty banter about the gospel. Sometimes people say to me, Pastor, your sense of humor is hard for visitors to come in because they don't pick up on it and they think you're kind of a jerk. Well, they're not far from the truth, are they? I I know I get a little sarcastic or you try to talk a little plainly so that people understand. Some of that is stylistic. Some of that is personality. I find great comfort in the words of Charles Spurgeon, who is one of the greatest gospel communicators ever. He said this as one lady criticized him for being too witty in the pulpit. He said, Madam, if you knew what I didn't say, you wouldn't say that. Meaning, if you only knew what I actually sat on, you'd actually think more of me spiritually. If you know what I really thought or what I really wanted to say or how I really wanted to say it, you'd think, he's a spiritual giant. And then you would be far from the truth. But what Paul is telling us here is something that we don't often think of. Your speech tells a lot about you and a lot about me. And we fail miserably in that regard. Woefully short of honoring Jesus' speech always with grace, seasoned with salt. The wisest man that ever lived wrote this in Ecclesiastes 10, 12. The words of a wise man's mouth are gracious. So if we are not speaking words of grace, we are declaring that we are not wise. The lips of a fool will swallow up himself. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is mischievous madness. A fool also is full of words. A man cannot tell what shall be and what shall be after him. Who can tell him? What he's teaching us is this. A wise man speaks and his words are always gracious. Always gracious. Seasoned with salt. Scintillating. Thoughtful. Purposeful. Joy sprinkled. Words of kindness and grace. But then he says this of the fool. The fool, he speaks and his Lips swallow up himself. You say, what in the world is lips swallowing up themselves? In effect, he falls into his own mouth. His mouth is so big, he falls into his own mouth. Here's how we would say it today. He sticks, or she sticks, her foot, or his foot, let me be all-inclusive, in their mouth. You ever stuck your foot in your mouth? Now, dude, I do it publicly three times a week. 
Stick your foot in your mouth. That's what he's saying. A fool, his lips swallow himself up. He falls into his own mouth. He sticks his foot in his mouth because he talks before he speaks or he lets his emotions do the talking for him. And when your emotions do the talking for you, you fall into your own mouth and that big gaping hole that is your mouth probably would be better off shut, right? Hard to fall into a hole with a lid on it. You say, that's not scriptural. Kind of. He's not only saying that, he goes on and he says the beginning of his mouth is foolishness. The very beginning, the root of his words is foolishness. Paul warned Timothy and he warned Titus about unruly vain talkers. Unaccountable to authority. They don't lead people to live wisely, but they lead people to live wickedly. They are literally foolish in their efforts. He then says, and we get this one, a fool also is full of words. They don't know when to stop talking. You know, I know what you're thinking. This is a sermon, it's different. Full of words. Just talking about general conversation. Talk too much. They don't know when to stop. Adversely, smart people, wise people, people who have learned the spiritual language, speak words that are gracious. The mouth of a Christian should utter the speech of perfection. Now let me explain that. That's spiritual growth, that's maturity. Never out of the mouth of a Christian should come words of lust, evil, deceit, cursing, oppression, lying, perversity, destruction, vanity, flattery, foolishness, babble, verbosity, idle talk, false teaching, boasting, hatred, swearing, filthy talk, anger, gossip. That's all characteristic of the unregenerate mouth. Your words always with grace, seasoned with salt. Make gracious speech a habit. Whether you're being persecuted whether you're in the heat of the moment and under pressure, whether you're in difficulty or ease, you're before a worldly judge or you're being mistreated by a brother or sister in Christ, gracious words. Whether it's your husband or it's your wife, whether it's your child or it's your parent, whether it's your neighbor or your enemy, whether you're teaching a Bible study or you're standing in the workplace, let your speech be gracious. Speak what is spiritual. Speak what is fitting, kind, sensitive, purposeful, complimenting, gentle, truthful, loving. Speak what is thoughtful, not bitter, abrasive, vindictive, sarcastic, shady, angry, cutting. None of those things. Let our words be gracious. You see, what we've uncovered in these few verses is so intensely practical. You and I have to grow up. One of the things that is required by maturation is learning. Colossians has told us Christ is sufficient. He can redeem you from your sins and grant you a new life. But there is a new lifestyle that must coincide your new life in Christ. And one of the clearest declarations, one of the greatest necessities of your new lifestyle is your speech habits. Learn the language of prayer and thanksgiving. Learn the language of the gospel. Learn the language of grace. If you're not learning this, you're not growing. And you don't have the capacity to say, well, the whole world speaks my language. No, they do not. You have to eagerly learn this language. Would you please bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment?
Thanks for listening this week to the Graceway Baptist Church podcast. For more information about our church and our ministries, head on over to our website at gracewaycharlotte.org. We are a church located in South Charlotte. We are growing and our ministries are doing big things for Christ. If you're looking for a way to get plugged into what we're doing, email us at info at gracewaycharlotte.org. Also, stay in the loop with everything happening by following us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is Graceway Charlotte. Thanks again for listening to the Graceway Charlotte podcast. We'll see you next week.